Good morning. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. So we are in the series Life of Paul. We are now in part 13. And if you remember, last week was titled The Second Hearing, Governor Festus. Do you remember that, those of you who were here? The reason it was called The Second Hearing is because we were at a point in Paul's life where there were three hearings. There was a series of three hearings, three legal proceedings that were taking place. There were Jewish people in Jerusalem who had accused um, Paul of criminal activity, at least of breaking their laws. And so he's in Caesarea at this point under the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire. And so there was a first hearing. There was a second hearing, which we covered last week. And the person who presided over that hearing was Governor Festus. That's why it was called the second hearing, Governor Festus. And today we move on to the third hearing, King Agrippa. Why is it titled that? Because this is the third hearing in a series of three legal proceedings. And the person that Paul is talking to now is King Agrippa. So we're just picking up where we left off last time. If you weren't here, I'll just let you know, Festus was the guy who presided over the hearing just before this, and he mishandled the trial. Paul is innocent. By the end of today's story, it's really obvious that everybody involved um, at this point understands that he's innocent, um, but he was not declared to be innocent. So Paul has um, used his rights as a Roman citizen and has appealed to a higher court. Um, at this point in Roman history, it seems that appealing to a higher court involved going to the emperor. There wasn't any, like, if you were appealing at the level of a governor of a province in the Roman Empire, you were appealing to the emperor, Caesar, Nero. Um, so that's what Paul does. He appeals to, the, to this higher court. And Festus, the guy who's now in charge of this case, um, he doesn't know what to do next. He can't just send Paul to Rome. Like, you can't just send a prisoner to Rome and the guy just walks up to the emperor and goes, hey, I'm here, I got some stuff to say. Like, Festus has to fill out paperwork, right? Festus has to explain to the Caesar why a prisoner is getting shipped to him, okay? So you can see this in the passage we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 25. If you have your Bible, that's where we're at. Acts chapter 25, and I'm going to read to you verses 26 through 27. This is Festus talking, and he says, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. So I, as Festus, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord. The my Lord there is the Caesar, okay? I have nothing right to write to the emperor, about him, Paul. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner and to not indicate the charges against him, right? So he doesn't know what to say. He says, Agrippa, good thing you're here. You can help me figure out what to write on this transfer notice because we're sending him to the emperor. Well, I don't know why. I don't understand why we're doing any of this. So why is he asking King Agrippa? All right, this is a person who hasn't even been part of our... Um, part of our story up to this point. What, why is he asking King, King Agrippa for advice? And the answer is because King Agrippa happens to be in town anyway. Um, this is, no, you can see this in the very first verse of our passage this morning. So again, if you're in Acts 25, you just go to verse 13. And this is pick, literally picking up right where we left off last week. This was the next verse. Verse 13 of Acts 25 says, after some days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call on Festus. Okay, so King Agrippa is the king. Bernice is his sister. The Bible passage does not say that, but history says that, that Bernice was the sister of King Agrippa. They both show up. King Agrippa, as best as I can tell, is the king of a neighboring territory. So Festus is the governor of a province that includes Caesarea and Jerusalem. Uh, king Agrippa is the king of an area that is where modern-day Lebanon is. So I believe it's north of where Festus is a ruler. And <clears throat> so King Agrippa is showing up to greet the new governor. Okay, because he's someone who who's, governs over a territory that's 
um, you know, nearby. But also, King Agrippa is not just someone who rules over some territory nearby. King Agrippa has influence in Festus's province. So Governor Festus has, has a province that includes the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem, of course, is a very Jewish city. It has the temple that's there, um, the high priest. All of this stuff is very, very important to the Jewish people religiously. And I don't know why, but for some reason, the Roman Empire allowed King Agrippa to be the person who chose the high priest in Jerusalem. Okay, So even though he's, he's a ruler of this other territory, for some reason, the Roman Empire allowed him to be the one to decide who was going to be the high priest in Jerusalem. So that's a very big, very big influential thing that King Agrippa is able to do in the territory that Festus is a governor over. So <clears throat> it says they arrived in Caesarea, which is the capital city. That's where Festus lives. And they paid a courtesy call. Courtesy call meaning like they went to greet the new governor. Like this is a, um, oh, thanks, Ron. Um, <coughs> went down the wrong pipe and now the problem's worse. <coughs> um, <coughs> So, uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, 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 King Agrippa. So, um, King Agrippa shows up because, do you remember last week, for those of you that were here, remember how I said all of the things that happened last week happened during the first 17 days of his governorship, right? He just, he got right on this case. The, the governor that was before him had left the case undecided, and so Festus shows up and starts clearing off the docket that was there from stuff that happened before his time. So all this happens very early on. So King Agrippa is showing up during the first month the Festus is governor. So he's obviously, I mean, the first month, it's very early in his administration. It's one ruler showing up to another ruler going, hey, you know, I'm here, I'm the king of that land. Oh, I know, I'm the governor of that land. You know, and you have conversations when that, first, that stuff first happens. So that's what's happening here. Um, the verses that we're gonna learn today, first of all, there are a whole lot of them. And um, in fact, I'll show them to you. It's basically these two pages, okay? We're starting here. This is where we left off. It's all this, all of this, whoa, all of this, all the way to here. Okay, that's our passage for this morning. Um, but I'm not going to go ahead and I'm not going to read every single one of those words because most of the verses that we are looking at today are repeated material. If you read through it, and I, you know, I'd say it's a great idea for you to read through Acts chapter 25, verses 13, all the way to 26, verse 32. Um, but most of it is repeated material. Uh, there's a big section right here that is Festus talking, and Festus is saying what we already know from earlier in the chapter. But King Agrippa doesn't know it, right? So all this stuff happens, and then the next part of the chapter, Festus turns to King Agrippa and says, let me tell you what just happened, and then he explains what we just read. So I'm not going to reread all of this stuff that tells us what we learned last week, just because Festus says it all over again. But Festus um, does that. Then there comes a point where Paul is able to speak, right? Because it's the third hearing King Agrippa. He gets to speak before King Agrippa. When Paul gets up and makes his speech, he talks about his life before he was a Christian. He talks about his conversion to Christianity, what happened when he was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him. He talked about what happens after he became a believer in Jesus Christ. And those are all things that we also know about. Like that's repeated material. For those of you that have been with us throughout this series, um, back in Acts chapter eight and nine, we learned about what Paul's life was like before he was converted and what happened when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. That has already been covered. Not only was it covered then when Luke told us it happened, but then in Acts chapter 22, there was a point, and you may remember this, where Paul stood up before all the Jewish people in Jerusalem and he told the story of his life and how he became a Christian and how Jesus appeared to him. So there's already been two times in the book of Acts where this is explained. And now before King Agrippa, Paul says it again. He explains his whole story. We've now, we, if you're reading through the book of Acts, we've already read this story twice. It's now the third time. But you have to remember for King Agrippa, it was his first time hearing it. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to mostly focus on the new material, which is toward the end here. Um, but in order to get there, let me summarize the stuff that I'm not going to read, the stuff that's mostly repetition. Um, so if you were to go through this, uh, starting in Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 14, uh, Agrippa's there, Festus is like, hey, thanks for visiting. Agrippa's like, yes, came to see the new governor. And then Felix goes, yeah, there's this crazy court case that I just finished. Oh, really? What was it about? Well, it was this guy, and I don't really know what he did wrong. There were these Jewish people. They were all upset, like, wipe him off the face of the earth. And I figured he did something really bad, but then I got into the middle of the court case, and it seemed to be a religious dispute, and I don't really know what to do about it. But the guy appealed to Caesar, and he's a Roman citizen, so I have to send him to Caesar, but I don't even know what to write. I don't know why I'm sending him, he, so I, I don't know. So Agrippa says, I would like to hear what this guy has to say. And so Festus goes, oh, okay, well, I mean, we, still, we haven't sent him to Caesar yet. Sure, sure, I'll, I'll let you hear what he has to say if you want to hear it. So then what happens in verse, so that's verses 13 through 22. Then when you get to verse 23, you see the actual meeting take place. And that's not going to put up on the screen, but I'll just tell you. It says, Agrippa and Bernice came in with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. So what happens, this is an interesting sort of hearing or trial that Paul has. It's not a normal one. This is like, this is the king has shown up and the governor's there and all the fancy people in town have shown up. And then because the king wants to hear Paul's story, he just gets brought into the party. So when we say this is the third hearing, like King Agrippa is asking Paul to defend himself and explain why he hasn't committed the crime that he's accused of. But the way you need to picture this going down, it's not like that scene in Law and Order SVU where they're in a little room and there's a silver table and no other furniture and one guy's screaming at the other guy and he's answering. Like that's not what this is. This is probably a big room, dozens of people, maybe a hundred people, the king, the governor, like fancy dignitaries and military leaders all over the place. And then Paul shows up to make his speech. So chapter 26, starting in verse one, Agrippa says, Paul, say what you have to say. Starting in verse four, Paul starts saying what he has to say. And from verse four to 11, Paul tells the story of what his life was like before he was a Christian. And basically, I mean, you can read it for yourself, but he kind of understands, like, I understand why these people are accusing me and want to kill me because I used to be one of them. I used to believe what they believe. I used to be a Jewish person that couldn't fathom the idea of Jesus being the Messiah and all that stuff. And so, like, I remember when I was one of them, I wanted to kill people like me. So I understand why they want to kill people like me. And then when he gets to verse 12, he starts explaining what happened when Jesus appeared to him on the road. And I'm just going to pick up in verse 15. So this is partway through the story where Jesus has already appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then, and then he, uh, Saul talks back. Saul is the same thing as Paul. And, he's, and he speaks back. And this is it. Verse 15 of Acts chapter 26. Then I said, who are you, Lord? Right? To the voice that appeared to him. And the Lord replied. So now he's quoting Jesus. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what I will reveal to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I now send you to them to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. Therefore, King Agrippa, and so this is now Paul talking, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews 
Oh yeah, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple, in the temple complex and were trying to kill me. To this very day, I have obtained help that comes from God and I stand and testify to both great and small saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people, the Gentiles. So that, I just read to you about the second half of Paul's speech. He talks a little bit in there even of stuff you may know because he talks about his conversion or like what happens after his conversion, that he went to the Gentiles and he went to the people in Damascus and he went to the people in Judea and he preaches all these things. Um, And so most of the new material is gonna be now starting in verse 24 and going to verse 32 where we're gonna see their reaction to the speech that Paul just gave to them. But before I give you their reaction, I wanna kind of review that speech. I want you to notice something about what Paul says, especially in the second half of his speech, which was the part I read to you. (laughs) Paul at this point is in a official like criminal hearing, I guess, right? I mean, the, 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 the trial has happened, but now he's about to be transferred to Caesar and they're listening to him in order to decide what's gonna be written on the paperwork that Caesar reads when he gets to Rome. So he's there to defend himself. And I guess that is sort of what he's doing. He's kind of defending himself in a legal proceeding. He talks about how he's on trial. And he says, for this reason, the Jews seized me. But if you listen to the way he was talking, you may have noticed there wasn't a whole lot of defending himself. He really tried to weave the gospel into what he was saying. Did you catch that? If his, if his goal was just prove that I'm innocent, he would have said different words, right? He could have really focused on, well, they were accusing me and they said that I snuck Trophimus into the temple and I know that's against their law, but I did it anyway. No, I didn't do it. They said I did it, but I didn't do it. He could have, he could have done any of that stuff. That's not what he, he doesn't focus on any of that. He focuses a lot on this is what Jesus says is true. And so I think he's kind of defending himself, but I think he's also evangelizing his hearers. I think he looked around at all the prominent people and went, all right, I got one shot. So I want to point out to you what he said or what he implied about the gospel in his speech. And so there's going to be seven things that are going to come up on the screen. I'm going to give you a list, and I'm just going to go through them real fa- as fast as I can. Um, you know me. I'll go as fast as I can go. Um, so I'm, there's, I'm going to give you seven things about the gospel that are either said or implied in Paul's speech as he's defending himself. And this is the first one. The gospel is a continuation of Judaism. Okay? That's one of the things that he says as he's as he's explained to them. The gospel is a continuation of Judaism, or the gospel is a fulfillment of Judaism. The place that you see that is in verse 22, okay? In verse 22, Paul says, to this very day I've obtained help that comes from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great. Now look, what does he testify to both small and great? This is what he says, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. So he's standing before King Agrippa and all the other people that are there, and he says, listen, I am not inventing a new religion. I'm a Jewish guy, and I believe the Old Testament. I believe Moses. I believe the prophets. I believe all that stuff, okay? And so I haven't changed my religion, right? This is what I believe. But this is the thing. When I'm going around telling everybody about Jesus, I'm just saying that the stuff that Moses and the prophets wrote about is true, Like it came true in our lifetime. I'm not saying anything different than what the Old Testament said. The Old Testament says this would happen. I'm just going around telling everybody it happened. But I haven't changed my beliefs. It's just the Old Testament said the Messiah was gonna come and I'm telling you he did. And so the gospel is a continuation or fulfillment of Judaism. All right, here's the second thing he says. The gospel involves believing in Jesus. This is very important to understand. The gospel involves believing in Jesus. How do we know this? Like what what did he say that lets us know this? Well, he quoted Jesus saying that, okay? Verse 18. Verse 18, Jesus is the one speaking. Paul is quoting to him, saying, Jesus appeared to me and said, okay? 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. This is what Paul's supposed to do with the Gentiles, right? And from the power of Satan to God, now look at this, that by faith in me, they may receive forgiveness of sins. Who's talking? Jesus, that's who the me is. That by faith in Jesus, they may receive forgiveness of sins. So Paul is quoting Jesus here saying, this is what Jesus said. The way that you get forgiveness of sins is believing in Jesus because Jesus said, believe in me to receive forgiveness of sins. Okay, here's the third thing he says. Uh, The gospel involves repenting from sin and turning toward God. The gospel involves repenting from sin and turning toward God. He says this in verse 20. As he's talking about what happened after he saw this vision of Jesus, he says he preached to different people in different cities, right? I preached to those in the region of Judea and to the Gentiles. Now look, what did he preach? This is what he says. He says, I preached that they should repent. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. Like that was the message. When Jesus told me what he told me, that's what I went and did. I told the people they need to repent from their sin and turn toward God. That's very important to understand because that's all over Christianity. You cannot believe in Jesus in such a way that you go back to the life you were living before after you've believed in Jesus. Does that make sense? Like when we say believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus is not like just this intellectual thing where you go, okay, so I didn't know he died on a cross, but someone told me he did, so now I believe that. Okay, you can't, if it's just an intellectual ascent and you go back to living the exact same life that you were living before, then you do not believe in Jesus, right? So in order to believe in Jesus, we must be people who repent and turn to God. <clears throat> All right, number four. The gospel involves being rescued from the power of Satan. The gospel involves being rescued from the power of Satan. We see this in verse 18. Jesus said to open their eyes so that they, he's talking about the Gentiles, all the people of all these nations that need to hear the gospel, that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This is important to understand. Paul taught this on other occasions. Multiple places I could take you to the Bible that talk about Paul speaking this way, and I guess we can tell from this verse where Paul got it from, because Jesus is the one that told it to him. But it's that under the power of Satan is the thing you have to be rescued from. Being under the power of Satan is the default position of humanity. I don't know if you know that. I think a lot of people don't believe that, okay? The default position, I mean, just if you don't do anything different, if you don't come to know God, like just the the, the position you're automatically in, the way you're just born into it in this world, under the power of Satan is the default position of humanity. Paul says this multiple times. Jesus is the one saying it here. Now, the reason I think that's significant is most people don't believe that. Most people believe there's um, like the Christians and the Christians believe in God, and so they're like on God's side, right? And then over here, there's like Satanists. Ooh, okay, I don't, I don't even know a Satanist, but they're probably awful, all right? And so there's Satanists, and they're on Satan's side, right? So you got the Christians, and they're on God's side, and then there's the Satanists, so they're on Satan's side, and they're killing goats, and I, we don't even know all the stuff they're doing. But Satanists are on Satan's side, and Christians are on God's side, and then in the middle are all the neutral people that are just shopping at Publix and living their lives. <laughs> That's not what the Bible teaches. The neutral zone doesn't exist. Everybody in Publix is under the power of God or the power of Satan. Those are the only two options there are. And so everybody is just by default, this is just what the Bible assumes, you are under Satan's power. If you go, but I've never heard of him. You don't have to have heard of his name. Everybody's under the power of Satan by default, even if you've never heard of him. And the only way to be free of Satan's power is for Jesus to rescue you, for you to believe in Jesus. All right, number five, the gospel involves being forgiven. The gospel involves being forgiven. Same verse, verse 18. Let's go back to it. 
to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me, they may receive what? Forgiveness of sins. The people who believe in Jesus are forgiven. They do not have to pay for their sins. They do not have to deal with the judgment and the consequences of their sins. They are forgiven of their sins by faith in Jesus Christ. Number six, the gospel involves receiving the inheritance reserved for God's people. Okay? And for that, again, we're going to go to verse 18 because it's the next phrase. So by faith in me, they may receive forgiveness of sins. Now, this is interesting. And what? We, so if we believe in Jesus, we receive more than just forgiveness of sins? Yeah, there's another thing. So it's more than just God wipes out my sins and I'm not condemned and I don't have to be judged for my sins? Yeah, there's a, another thing. What's the other thing? They, not only forgiveness of sins, but also a share among those who are sanctified. Now, the word sanctified means to be holy or to be set apart. And so those who are sanctified are the people who have been set apart by God. Okay, they are whole, God calls them righteous. These are my people. These are my set apart people. The people who are set apart by God, right? The people in God's kingdom that are no longer under the power of Satan, they get a share, okay? They get a share in the inheritance of God. Well, what is it? What is the inheritance? If you believe in Jesus, you receive not only forgiveness of sins, but this share in the inheritance that's for God's people. And I think you can tell probably from this chapter and maybe all over the Bible, and particularly, wow, it's really raining. <clears throat> um, particularly other places where Paul writes, the inheritance for God's people, like the share that is for those who are sanctified, is the resurrection from the dead. That's the way Paul talks in the book of Acts. It's the way he talks in his other letters. It's eternal life. Okay, the share among those who are sanctified is eternal life. That's what you receive, forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. Number seven, the gospel involves believing Jesus rose from the dead. This is huge, and this kind of matches the one before it. If the gospel is about people who are going to be risen from the dead, we must have some reason why we think we're going to get risen from the dead and live forever. And, and it starts with the fact that Jesus was the first one who rose again from the grave. So he talks about this in verse 8 of his speech. I didn't read it to you earlier. I will read it to you now. In verse 8, when Paul was talking, he said, this, he asked this, I guess, rhetorical question. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why is it so crazy that I'm teaching this? Like, I'm going around telling people, like, there is a Messiah who's come who is going to undo the problem of death, right? Why is, why is this so crazy? This is what Moses and the prophets taught. And then at the end of his speech, he says this. This is verse 23. That the Messiah must suffer and that, this is an interesting way to phrase it, as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. He's saying, I believe Jesus rose again from the grave, but not only him, He's going to come back and there's going to be a whole bunch of people that get raised from the dead. That's the gospel. And so basically, if I could have all seven of the points back up here, he's in a criminal proceeding. He's supposed to defend himself. This is going to affect what the Caesar hears when he shows up in Rome, right? And, and what does he do? Yeah, he, I mean, he defends himself, but he's, he weaves in that the gospel is a fulfillment of Judaism, involves believing in Jesus, repenting of our sins, being rescued from the power of Satan, and being forgiven, and receiving the inheritance that reserved for God's people, and believing that Jesus rose from the dead. He gets all of that in there. Now, how did they react? Look at verse 24. So here we go. He says his whole speech. Now here's verse 24. As he was making his defense this way, this is now the new material. This is where the plot moves forward. As he was making his defense this way, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. Now, it's kind of frustrating because Paul is here presenting the gospel to King Agrippa and his sister and a bunch of fancy people, 
And Festus, it looks like, interrupts him to say, you're crazy, okay? And I guess it's kind of a nice you're crazy because he says, you know, you're so smart, you're crazy, right? You've read so many books, you're insane, okay? And I guess that's nicer than just you're insane. But he's still, he's saying, what you're saying is crazy. And so Paul responds back, look at this, verse 25. Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Oh, what a respectful way to disagree. You're there in the middle of talking, the guy interrupts you and calls you crazy. And instead of, and, and, and he doesn't go, well, you're right, if you say so, I'm crazy, you're the governor, right? No, but he doesn't also be like, who are you calling crazy? No, he says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. What a respectful way. I disagree with you, your honor, right? That's what's happening here. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. Verse 26, for the king knows about these matters. Now, this is important. The king knows about these matters. It is to him I am actually speaking boldly. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his notice since this was not done in a corner. Festus says, hey, you're crazy. And Paul says, I don't think I am, your honor. But here's the thing. I'm not talking to you. I'm, I'm talking to him. Like, you might think I'm crazy, but that's fine. I already had a turn with you, okay? Now it's my turn with him. And I think he gets it. I think he understands this Jewish stuff that I'm talking about. This is King Agrippa. This is the guy who chooses who the high priest is. This guy's read some Moses and some prophets, okay? I, I'm, you can say I'm crazy for believing about the Messiah and that he's gonna rise from the dead, but I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to King Agrippa right now. I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his notice since this was not done in a corner. I mean, this was a, there was a lot that got crammed into this century, right? Jesus and his miracles and died and rose again and Paul going around telling everybody about this. He's like, I think King Agrippa knows what's going on. And then he, he's bold enough to ask this question. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. So he's the one being questioned. He's the one that's on trial. And yet he asks the guy who's the one that's supposed to be asking him the questions. You believe this, right? The Moses and the prophets, don't you believe? And it's just interesting because it seems like he is pushing King Agrippa to believe. He's saying like, don't, don't you believe the Old Testament? Remember earlier he had said, I'm just saying that all the stuff that Moses and the prophets said, I'm just saying it came true. Don't you believe all those writings? Yeah, you believe it, don't you, right? And so I think Agrippa is figuring out that Paul isn't really defending himself anymore. He's just trying to persuade Agrippa to be a Christian because look what Agrippa says back. Look at verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? That's what you're doing here? I'm here to find out, did you commit the crime or not? And you think you're going to turn me into a Christian? You think with your little five, 10 minute speech about Moses and the prophets, you're going to get me to be a Christian in such a short period of time? And then Paul says back, verse 29, I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty... Not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. What a powerful statement. I think this is such a powerful statement, and I want to give you like a feeling for it, because as I was thinking about it, I think the reason this is so powerful, it's not because of Paul's eloquence, and it's not because he had like the perfect prepared answer. He could not have had the perfect prepared answer. This was off the cuff. It had to be because he didn't know that King Agrippa was going to say, are you trying to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? So when he, wrote, when he says, speaks back, he says, well, easily or with difficulty, I'll take it either way, right? But he couldn't have prepared to say that in advance, right? He had to speak off the cuff because he didn't know what Agrippa was going to say. And he says this, 
And I think the reason this is so powerful, at least to me, is not because it's amazing rhetoric or the perfectly prepared statement. I think it's just the authenticity and the truthfulness. Paul's just being his authentic self and he got asked a question and he just answered the question truthfully. And I was trying to think about that so you could imagine that this is not just a Bible thing. Like this is something that happens in life. And I'm just wondering, have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen someone that they gave the perfect answer to a question, not because they were such a good debater or because they had prepared ahead of time, but because their authentic self telling the truth just was the perfect answer to the question? Have you seen this before in your life? Because I was thinking this and I was thinking, this happens sometimes. And I was trying to think in my own life and I've came up with a few different examples. I was thinking, when are there times where I've seen someone do this? And maybe you have too, where someone is kind of being like, they're asking questions and they're being accusatory and the person that's getting the difficult questions just answers truthfully and like the whole thing is shut down and you're like, whoa, it was just the perfect person answering the question honestly at the perfect moment. Have you seen this before? And so this is the one I thought of in my life. My wife told me this story happened one time. Okay, so my, my wife was having, like, this was years ago, a guy that we went to church with and my wife were having a conversation, an argument, I guess is maybe more accurate. Okay, so my, my wife and this guy are having an argument and the guy was mad at me. Um, and the guy was mad at me because of my relationship with this other guy in our church that I guess he thought I hung out with too often. And he was, at least Heidi's estimation was, that he was jealous. And he kept, the way he, she could tell is he kept using the phrase Mario's best friend to refer to this guy derogatorily. So he kept saying stuff like, well, maybe Mario needs to just check with his best friend about that. Or, oh, if Mario wasn't hanging out with his best friend all the time, maybe he'd be able to blah, 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 whatever. So my wife said to him, that guy's not Mario's best friend. And the guy said, oh, really? Then who is Mario's best friend? And my wife went, I am. <laughs> now, I wasn't there for this conversation, but, but when she told it to me, I was like, oh. <laughs> like, to be a fly on the wall of that conversation, what, that would have been awesome. Now, here's the thing. I think that her answer was so good, not because she's a trained debater. She's not. Not because she had the perfect prepared statement. She didn't know what he was going to say. Just her authentic self answering the question truthfully was like the perfect answer. And that's what I think is happening here. King Agrippa says, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? And Paul says back, do, do I want you to become a Christian so easily? Yes. Or heartily. Either way, easily or with difficulty. I'll take you anyway. In fact, not just you. Everybody in this room, all you fancy people, I hope all of you become Christians. I mean, you're asking me, do I want you to become a Christian? Yes. Yes to everybody in the room. I want all of you to have the hope I have. I want all of you to experience the resurrection I'm going to experience. I want all of you to get the forgiveness that I've received. I want all of you to have everything I have except for these chains. Right? Look at this. I wish before God that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. Yeah, I want everybody in this room to become a Christian. I want everybody in this room to have what I have, except my prisonership. I wouldn't wish my prisonership on any of you. <laughs> what a bold, evangelistic, authentic, truthful, kind response. So what happens? Here's how the story ends. Final two paragraphs. So the king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up. And when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man is doing nothing that deserves death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. That's the end of the chapter. 
Here's the question. Is that a good ending or a bad ending? I think it's both. The good part of it is they find him to be innocent, all right? They walk out the room and they say, this man is doing nothing that deserves death or chains. He shouldn't be here, right? This man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar, which is kind of frustrating that they're willing to say it now. Well, it's too late for us to do anything about it now that he's appealed to Caesar. Well, if he's innocent, why didn't you declare him innocent back when you could have? So it's a little frustrating, but at least the, good, the upside is they recognize that he's innocent. They recognize he hasn't done anything wrong and he deserves to be released and he deserves his freedom. So I think that's good. Here's the bad part about it. They reject the gospel. They walk out of the room and they come to the correct conclusions about Paul, that he's innocent, but they do not come to the correct conclusions about Jesus because Festus thinks the idea of Messiah rising from the dead is crazy. And Agrippa said, you think I'm going to become a Christian that fast? And so they reject the gospel. Now, what is the significance of these stories? I mean, if you've been paying attention these last few weeks, we did the first hearing, the second hearing, the third hearing. What is the significance of these three hearings in the Bible? And the answer is, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. What's happening in this story is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus said these things would happen. So I want to show them to you. Just real quick, I want to go to Acts chapter 9, verse 15. This is Jesus speaking to a man named Ananias about Paul, and I want you to notice what he says, okay? The Lord said to him, go for this man, and the this man in context is Paul, okay? This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. This is the guy, I want him to go talk to Jewish people, which he did. I want him to go to talk to Gentile people, which he did. And he's going to say this stuff to kings, which he is doing right now in this story, to King Agrippa, and he's about to get transferred to the Caesar. The other one I wanted to show you is from Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 is back when Jesus was, this is before he died on the cross, before he rose again. Jesus was speaking one time with his disciples, and he said this, and this is not about Paul specifically, it's just about Christians in the future, but this is what he says. Verse, Mark 13 verse 9, but you be on your guard. They will hand you over to Sanhedrin's and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. You guys are going to stand before governors and kings as a witness for me. And then we get to the, this part of the book of Acts and what's happening. Here we have a Christian who's standing before these past three weeks, Governor Felix, Governor Festus, King Agrippa. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Okay, as I end this sermon, I want to point out something to you that was pointed out to me in an Alistair Begg sermon. Alistair Begg is a pastor in Cleveland, Ohio, and I like him a lot, and I was listening to a sermon on this passage, and he's pointed out something that, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have picked up on it. He points out that Agrippa hears an appeal to believe the gospel, and then what happens next? Okay, if you look at the story, Paul presents the gospel, Agrippa says, you think I'm really going to become, do you really want me to become a Christian that easily? And Paul says, yes, I want you to become a Christian. And what's the next thing that happens? The next thing that happens in the story is the king got up and left. Paul said, you need to become a Christian. And the king, the very next thing he does is he gets up and he leaves the room. And he walks out of the room and then he goes and talks about something else. I mean, and the thing he's talking about isn't a bad thing. He talks about Paul's innocence. But I just want you to notice, he hears the gospel, walks out of the room, and starts talking about something else. 
And so I wanted to end my sermon similarly to the way Alistair Begg did by asking this question. Are there some of you that are doing that here? Agrippa hears the gospel, leaves the room, says something nice about the preacher, but remains unconverted. Are there some of you doing that here? Like week after week, hearing the gospel, going to lunch, and saying, good sermon, I like that Mario guy. But remaining in your sin. Because if so, that would be tragic. That would be tragic. And you might say, no, no, it's not tragic, Mario. You'd love it. Last week we went out to Outback after church, and when we were eating our steak, it was great. We, we talked about how much we like you and we like your preaching. I don't care if you like me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd rather people like me than not like me. But you need to understand this. Do you realize that there are people on this planet right now who do not like me, who are going to spend eternity with God because they follow Jesus? And do you realize there are people probably in this room who like me a lot and are going to go to hell because they do not follow Jesus? I am genuinely concerned that there may be some of you here this morning who think you're Christians because you go to church every week and you enjoy it. Oh, I must be a Christian because I like church. Oh, please. This is a particularly enjoyable church. <laughs> it is. It is. And, and, and I'm not even trying to be funny. I'm, I'm being dead serious here. You could like this church and be a pagan under the power of Satan. And so if you are someone who has been coming here for months and every week you hear the message of God and then you get up and you walk out unchanged by it, but you say, good sermon, that Mario's a nice guy. Like today needs to be the last day you ever do that. In fact, you shouldn't do that today. Last Sunday needs to be the last day you ever did that. And today needs to be the day where your eyes are opened and you turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that by faith in Jesus, you may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified and that you should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. You guys are real people. I know a lot of you, a lot of you know me, and I, I, I don't know what else to say other than to beg you to not walk out the door doing it again. If you have said to yourself, hey, well, I don't know, I don't know about this Christian stuff, but I like Mario, like, that, that needs to end. It needs to end today. And if you're here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you go, well, this is nice, but what about for me? Like, what am I supposed to do? And I would say my advice to you is it's really the same thing that I would say to them. Right? I would say, to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, I would say you need to trust in Jesus and you need to repent of your sins. And I would say to those of you who are believers, the very same thing. Like that's, we, we continue in the faith the same way we started in it. Like the way that you are a Christian, you understand the way, like Christianity is not that there was some point in your life where you believed in Jesus and like, okay, I did that. And I go, then I go on with my life. That there's some point where like, okay, I repented of sin. Like those of us who are Christians, we continue to believe in Jesus. We continue to trust God. We continue to repent of our sins as they come up our whole life.
Let's pray. God, I thank you for these moments where we could see, like we can look at how tragic it is that King Agrippa would walk out having known what he known and, and then just, and, and then walk out and even say like, oh, Paul, he's a good guy. He should be released. And not catch that his soul is in danger. And so I just pray for all of us in this room right now, for those of us who do not yet know you, I do pray that today would be the day. I pray that you would grant repentance and faith and that there would be people who would today say, I'm, not, I'm no longer going to be under the power of Satan. I'm going to turn to Jesus. I'm not going to wait around and hear it another time. And I pray for those of us who do believe in you, that we would continue to believe and repent. Thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me end with these good words from God's word. To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. That is good news. Thank you guys for listening.